This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Rumya. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on-air community, and everyone's invited. Welcome to Kelly and Rumya. You're listening on Accessible Media, Inc. I'm Rumya Amadin. And I'm Kelly McDonald. We're the hosts of today's show, and we're exactly one week into March 2023. And for some reason, that feels like it should be said out loud. You know, that first quarter of the last two thirds quarter ah. of the year. Okay. Oof. All right. You know what I did earlier this year? I checked how many weekends, you know, are already kind of like called for this year so uh, what spoken for that's what i'm trying to say how many weekends in this entire 2023 are already kind of you know we have this plan or that plan or we're going away or uh you probably things are happening people having babies a lot of my friends are having babies this year so you know due well, dates you and don't know like they're going to be on weekends i know but just <laughs> just a big kind of to block it off right and thinking right, right, oh we don't know have that whenever. many weekends left to right. do nothing or to insert all the other unplanned plans that come up closer to. But isn't Area. it human nature anyway to fill your weekends up? Or there's always something to do, whether it's Saturday morning, Sunday mm-hmm. afternoon. We, it's, it, we are all, oh, I don't have to work. I've got to find something. I can't let the weekend get wasted. So by nature, we use them up, don't we? We do, but I've Even never don't go out. done it. Yeah, and actually, I've already spent a, a handful of weekends up till now doing nothing. But what I never had done is look ahead for a year worth of weekends and say, this is what this is looking like. It's pretty scary oh. if you're planning on doing it. You're going to do that next year, you think? I don't think so. Is it too scary? Yeah, no, it was too, too scary. scary this week. <laughs> this year, they're trying to do left. it again. Exactly. Oh, the tank's emptying already, and I haven't done anything. I have no more weekends, and I haven't even gone through the first quarter of the year yet. All right, well, what we can look ahead to for sure is what's coming up on today's show. Let's do that. Here's a question for you. What are some of the unintended consequences of springing ahead one hour every year? Well, we're going to find out more and talk more about it with Francis Wong on our wellness segment. This coming Sunday marks... World Glaucoma Week, and Dr. Larissa Moniz of Fighting Blindness Canada is back with us to tell us about this common eye disease and how it can be mitigated. We have our parenting chat with Lucia Belafonte later on in second hour. She has a guest, Gavin O'Sullivan, joining her, and we're talking about how kind and thoughtful parenting can make a difference in people's lives and in a practical sense as well. Looking forward to that conversation in hour two. Okay, now here's something going on in the U.S. that uh, I think we can all find, well, it's theme of the day, scary. A Massachusetts man is facing multiple charges after he tried to violently open the emergency exit door during a United Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Boston. And ABC's Joe Benitez says passengers and crew members had to restrain the man. 
We're talking about, about like five passengers or so. They tackled this guy, held him down, and then they had the flight attendants bring over some zip ties, and that's where, how they were able to restrain him. Now he's facing some very serious charges. We're talking about interference with a flight crew using a dangerous weapon. If he's convicted of that charge, we're talking about life in prison. Oh, wow. Okay. 33-year-old, uh, this passenger was... Francisco Severo Torres is due back in U.S. federal court on Thursday of this week. So we'll find out more. Uh, but I mean, we've talked about different things going on on flights, Kelly, that are disconcerting to say the least. You know, people maybe having a little too much to drink or becoming rowdy with other passengers, with uh, flight attendants and staff in general. But this kind of thing, you know, trying to <laughs> break the doors open for no apparent reason, and then the last possible resort being a zip tie to restrain yep. him. I mean, that seems like the maximum of what could happen. Yeah, you think telling him, leaning in his ear and saying, listen, buddy, that first step is a doozy. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, would be enough. But I also know that... And, and I don't think it's anything new that the stress levels people have, whether they like to fly, don't, or, you know, what they'll say nowadays. But the alcohol on planes and stuff, I, I, I know sometimes you just want to rethink some of these things. Mm. But why should one affect what, what, what others are, some other people having a casual drink to calm their nerves or whatever it might be, are fine with not jumping up to try to open a, an airline door? I, I think there's a lot of argument um, uh, for that. And... You know, there's just different things you just know you shouldn't do, can't do. And I always wonder, what is flying through your head? Like, mm -hmm. nothing's going to come out well of opening an airplane door at cruising level. Nothing. Yeah. I think about, um, you know, stacked circumstances, right? So maybe it's not just the alcohol or maybe it's not right. just mental health. Maybe it's like the consequences of a domino effect of what people are going through. I know that this may seem like a simple thing, but in the last several years, rules have changed, right? You have to wear your mask. You have to be seated. You're, yeah. you're only allowed so-and-so, whatever. So these kind of things could maybe compound affect people's behaviors. But again, or this is not just, just hear about it. You know what I mean? Years ago, we maybe we've certainly had these things go on where people had to be yes. tackled from doing. But did we hear about it? Did we have the ease of hearing about yeah. a flight in 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 France that this happened on or wherever? Right. The consequence, though, life in prison potentially. Yeah. Woof. I mean, maybe if well, you, you had whispered about... that in his ear, he would have second guessed maybe, what he was doing. Maybe bad step, and well, I mean, he might have turned back to me and said. I ain't going to have to worry about being in prison right. if I get this open. Yeah. Okay. Well, and we'll scary. keep posted. We will. And it is scary. Taking a break, though, and after that, we're going to have a lovely conversation with Dr. Danielle Jeankind about the human-animal bond and how it affects the practice of vet medicine in her eyes. We'll be right back. This is Kelly and Ramya. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. Welcome back. It's Kelly and Ramya on AMI. Kelly McDonald in London, Ontario. Ramya Amuthan in Toronto. And I have a dog. A lot of people around the office love it when my dog comes around. Or, you know, we love it when any animals come around and hang out with us. Some of us are pet owners. Some of us aren't. But I think, I think we can all agree that there is the general human-animal bond that we can appreciate around us. So to talk more about this, let's bring on Dr. Danielle Jonkine. 
whether they provide us with companionship and income, food, or serve a critical role in the ecosystems that support us. Animals are vital to human health. Have fun with us as we learn about animal-related topics and about the amazing bond we share with our animal friends. Representing Dr. Danielle Jonkin today is our favorite black cat with the purple phone. And listen, this human-animal bond, I think it's very easy to say that it's woven inextricably into our lives, whether we live with an animal or not. And you can see evidence of it everywhere, Danielle, in many volunteer organizations that promote animal welfare. Also, the laws that are placed that promise consequences for harming animals. And of course, all the books, documentaries, cartoons, shows and movies featuring animals that everybody loves to enjoy as a society. And we want to talk more about what this human-animal bond is and how it impacts the practice of veterinary medicine. And that's what we're diving into with you today. So what is the definition, aside from all the examples I just pointed out, the definition of the human-animal bond? Well, um, it's actually the relationship that people have with animals, you know, and it kind of encompasses um, all of those behaviors that are beneficial to both humans and animals. So in a very narrow sense, you know, it can describe the relationship between a person and their pet, you know, which of course can provide psychological and physical benefits for both the pet and the people in its life. And, you know, in a much broader sense, it applies to the human species and how our survival depends on the animal species that we share the planet with. Um, a good example of that broader sort of outlook is, you know, how we rely on bees and other insects from the animal kingdom for food. So we know that bees provide honey, of course, but they also pollinate a lot of our staple food crops. And so, you know, it's something that you, when you kind of, you know, look at the, the big picture or the small picture, you can, you know, find lots of examples for um you know, the, the existence of this bond. And, you know, the human-animal bond, of course, is the reason that my profession exists at all. So it, it really does have a big impact on veterinary medicine. Wow. So, Danielle, my question to you is, what sort of evidence do we see in our society that the human-animal bond is a big part of all of us? Well, you know, I'd, I'd hazard a guess that most people would think that you know, the popularity of living with pets is the most obvious manifestation of this bond phenomenon. But when you really look, you know, you can see all kinds of evidence um, for its existence woven into other things that we rarely even give a second thought to. Um, you know, it's that empathy, concern, and compassion for our animal relatives that motivates us to form bonds with them. And you can find that behind every animal rescue or welfare group out there. Um, in many places in the world, animal welfare values are enshrined into law. And we even have international treaties, you know, things like the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, for example. Um, you know, the human-animal bond is one reason why people feed birds in their backyard, <laughs> you know. It's why they donate to charities that help protect habitat, conserve wildlife, and why they adopt pets from animal shelters. And, you know, probably one of the most striking examples to me of how important this bond is to people, you know, is, is found in popular culture. You know, we have classic books like Black Beauty and Old Yeller, um, classic TV shows like Lassie and The Littlest Hobo. And, you know, we've had a fascination for animal stories for a long time as a society. 
and even in the more modern era, you know, kids watch cartoons with animal characters like Paw Patrol and Wonder Pets. <laughs> and there are literally tons of documentaries on every type of animal from wildlife to house cats. And, you know, what really amazes me in the modern era is the rise of pet celebrities on social media, <laughs> you know. We, we see pets used in advertising, and even in the fictional stories we create, you know, um, can maintain strong ties to an animal theme. And even when I think of the popularity of fantasy stories featuring creatures like dragons, werewolves, and animal shapeshifters, you know, there's little doubt in my mind that we have this strong connection to our animal friends. And if you doubt that, think about this. You know, when, when was the last time you saw a movie featuring a character that could shapeshift into a fungus? Never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that idea coming to fruition seems far-fetched. But, um, you know, yesterday we were talking about birding by ear, Danielle, and, and how th- that spun into all of this incredible, you know, conversation about just how much we'd love to, to take it in, CDs and uh, things made so that we can kind of get to know the birds around us. And even that's an example of the human-animal bond. How does this bond benefit us? Well, you know, domestication of animals is maybe one of the earliest examples of the human-animal bond, you know, and and it's provided us with readily available food sources. And, you know, most people assume that means meat, you know, but it also means milk and other dairy products, eggs, it means honey. Um, even people who are vegan rely indirectly on animals for food because plants rely on animals too, mm-hmm. you know. Um, some animals do pollinate plants. Um, you know, they eat the fruit and spread their seeds and provide fertilizer for plant growth. Um, right. And of course, you know, anyone who has ever bonded strongly with an animal knows that there are benefits to that friendship you have with that animal. So, you know, even science has shown that there are benefits to the human-animal bond. Um, under the right circumstances, you know, pets can help us feel less lonely. They can reduce stress and anxiety. They can encourage us to exercise. Um, and they give some of us a reason to get out of bed in the morning, you know, because they are counting on us to provide for them what they need. And, I mean, we all know animal therapy programs that have helped veterans with PTSD, people in long-term care. Um, animals can assist people with disabilities, you know, which I'm sure many of our viewers know already. Very much. That's amazing. Yeah, very much so. Um I'm curious, though, when you look at yourself, Danielle, a veterinarian, how does that human-animal bond impact veterinarian medicine? (laughs) Well, you know, of course, in so many ways, just like you'd expect, you know. um, As I said earlier, you know, veterinarians, um, we just wouldn't exist if there was no such thing as the human-animal bond. That's my my (laughs) thought on it anyway. Um, You know, veterinary medicine began as a profession in response to the needs of, you know, um, the animal agriculture industry and, you know, and transportation with horses. And, you know, without that human-animal bond and domestication, we never would have had those partnerships with domestic animals to begin with. Um, Today, of course, veterinarians have a huge role to play in making sure we have a safe food supply. And, you know, going forward from that time, you know, the veterinary profession, we began to branch out into companion animals, and the human-animal bond certainly drives that aspect of professional practice. 
uh, people, they want to make sure that their pet family members are well taken care of so they can reap those benefits from the bonds that they have with their pets. And companion animal practice, you know, it, it encourages more than just looking after an animal's health. Indirectly, it's also looking after the health of the people that share an animal's life. So, you know, your vet wants to make sure that, you know, people don't catch diseases and parasites from their pets. We want to make sure that their pet's behavior is helping to maintain a strong bond with their people um, because a breakdown in that bond could result in the animal being given up for adoption or in some cases even being euthanized for a problem like aggression. Because we, you know, we all know like a healthy pet who has a solid emotional bond with their human family is good for people's mental health. Um, while vets are certainly not psychologists or psychiatrists in any sense of the word, you know, we help people to cope when their pets are ill or when they die. Um, and sometimes this care looks like good medical advice related to the pet's health, and sometimes it's a kind word or two just to let someone know we understand how hard losing your pet can be. Um, I don't know anyone who works in my field that hasn't lost a pet of their own, so, you know, that's um, a little bit of commiseration there because we really do understand that. And, you know, the desire to help our animal friends, um, it also spurs some scientific investigation into animal health and the advancement of medical knowledge in both the veterinary and human medical fields. A lot of vets work in research-based careers and for pharmaceutical companies and pet food companies, and, you know, all of this kind of stuff can help out with that. Um, and finally, you know, I'd make an argument that Zoos and wildlife conservation organizations are also in existence due to the human-animal bond, and those have also influenced the veterinary profession, um, as wildlife sometimes needs veterinary care too. And, uh, you know, vets need, are needed to work in those zoos um, and for conservation organizations and for charities that rehabilitate wildlife. So definitely it's had a big impact on the veterinary profession. And Danielle, how do you see the human-animal bond influencing veterinary medicine into the future? <laughs> well, of course, who can really say, you know, mm -hmm. but um, I, I do see a lot of um, promise for the future um, in the concept of something called One Health, though. Um, One Health is the, the idea that the health of humans, animals, and the planet, you know, that they're inextricably linked to each other. And, you know, you can see that idea borne out in so many ways. But a good example is, is the spread of infections like Lyme disease, for example. So, you know, we know that due to climate change and warmer winters, uh, the species of ticks that carry this infection are spreading northward and they're surviving the winters here. More ticks surviving the winters means more tick bites and more transmission of the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. And Lyme disease is a debilitating illness in people, and it is in some dogs as well. Uh, while we don't want to get Lyme disease ourselves, you know, the human-animal bond motivates us not to let our dogs get it either. We don't want them getting it. And as a result, you know, this has spurred research into the condition, um, the development of tick prevention medications, and surveillance of Lyme infection in our dogs. And all of this is useful to predict the risks of Lyme disease to humans as well. So, you know, since we share our lives with our dogs, if they're at risk for tick bites that transmit Lyme disease, then so are we. 
the human-animal bond is a critical component to this One Health concept, you know, and looking at the world through that One Health lens could really help us um, a lot as we look towards solving some of the, you know, the crises that are facing humanity today and into the future. So it's kind of a, a neat sort of concept, a neat idea. Right, yeah. It's so interesting because you pointed out, you know, many reasons why we look to animals, why animals look to us, and, and in a lot of ways how uh, we can relate to each other as humans through the bond of animals, right? Like, like your patients that come to see you and then uh, their pet parents and how you can have that relatability between each other um, because that's one of the biggest things that animals share with us. Sure. And, you know, there, there's nothing like getting two shy people, you know, um, talking about their pets or whatever, yeah. you know, it gives you that sort of, you know, springboard, something in common you can talk about, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and uh, it brings people together. And there's a lot you can learn from your pets, you know, about, um, you know, um, tolerance and acceptance and, you know, about Patience. accepting The socialization kind of is tremendous, right? Yeah. When it comes to yeah. what you learn and for your pets and, like you said earlier, people who may be lonely, just needing something to do or that get up every day just to walk the dog and feed the dog. Yep, yep. It, uh, it's a nice thing to have a purpose and, you know, if, um, you know, if you're in one of those situations in your life where, you know, you feel like you don't have a lot of purpose, you know, having, having a pet can definitely give you that for sure. You know, I remember um, many years ago when I lost my own dog, you know, he passed away and, um, and I remember being really devastated at the things that I didn't have to do anymore. I had no reason to get out of the house and go for a walk and, you know, and to scrub the water bowl in the morning and all this stuff, you know. And it was it was this big hole in my day, you know. It makes a big difference. It really does. Danielle, so much to think about. Thank you. You're welcome. So much to appreciate, as we always do with Dr. Danielle Jeanne joining us for Ask a Veterinarian on Tuesdays. Taking a quick break and coming back, we will chat about springing ahead, an hour every year, daylight savings, standard time. Uh, We're bringing it all up with Francis Wong on our wellness segment. We'll be back. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. every time it gets sunnier I feel like I have to refresh myself do you wear sunglasses uh, very sunny, sunny sometimes yeah sometimes I do I should wear I should wear proper glasses for my eye condition to be honest with you oh, yeah, me should too. have a long time ago however I, I I didn't learn that lesson and I was told since I was a kid I used to wear glasses but they weren't protective in the same way for the Sun um, at least I don't remember. I always felt like, no, 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 no. They're just glasses to wear because doctors need me to wear glasses. That's mm-hmm. the way I felt about it as a kid. Um, but uh, sometimes I'll put them on. I think I figure I can't see enough now anyway, so it doesn't seem to create the shadow issue that I used to. I just accept, well, you're not going to really see anything anyway. Yeah. But if I'm ca- kayaking or something like that, I actually don't mind that just because of the glint off the water and everything. Right, exactly. Well, I'm asking because it's very sunny today in Toronto, like absolutely gorgeous. But um, I 
don't have my sunglasses and I wish I had started to wear them. Do you wear them more in the summer or in the winter because of oh, the Oh, absolutely blinds? more in the summer, but I now feel my eyes have become much more sensitive and I should be wearing them all the time whenever there's sun. Yeah, especially with snow, I think. It, winter more than anything. Mm. What's the vibe with sunglasses and a toucan? Because that's what the winter look is going to look like. Anyway. Oh, I think lots of people do. Yeah. I think so. I, I think a so. lot of people, because they're worried about the damage and it's just the snow blindness. Mm -hmm. Anyway, these are some of the uh, introductions we get when we're listening to Kelly and Ramia on AMI. They're, they're the things that pop into our head for sure. And uh -huh. yes, folks, very random. Uh, let's chat about the world of health and wellness with Francis Wong. Hello, I'm Francis Wong, and I invite you to join me as we explore topics of health and wellness so that you can make the best choices for you to live an informed and radiant life. Welcome back to the show, Francis. And we're going to talk today about something that happens twice a year and every year without fail. It seems it's also something we struggle through this. Probably wondering, folks, what the heck are you guys talking about? The dreaded time change. Francis, how did this idea even come about to begin with? Uh, thanks, Kelly. I think that everyone loves that we get an extra hour of time, whether it's to sleep in or to stay up later in the fall. But I don't know anyone that rejoices at the idea of losing that hour of daylight um, <laughs> during the day. Yep. So how did we end up in this place? We can thank a few people who came up with this idea around the same time. Most people know about daylight saving time or DST um, coming in during the First World War. But did you know that Canada, in particular Port Arthur in Ontario, which is known as Thunder Bay today, uh, was the first place in the world to have daylight saving time? Oh, I had no oh, idea. Oh, no. no. Yeah. They turned the clock back uh, forward by one hour on July 1st, 1908. And shortly after that, other locations in Canada followed. Um, do you have any guesses as to who was credited for suggesting daylight saving time? I don't know. Um, no. One of the settlers. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have a feeling it had to do with somebody that wanted to sell more time, more um, more electrics. Like, yeah, you need more reason to put your lights on. So, making it so that we needed to to do more to expand energy. Right. So, close, kind of. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to the editor of the journal Paris as a joke and suggested that pe people wake up earlier in the morning to save on using candles and lamp oil. And then two oh. other people you two yeah, two other people you probably never heard of, a British builder by the name of William Willett and a New Zealand scientist George Vernon Hudson. Both just suggested shifting the time forward and back. But while Hudson's idea in 1895 was a two-hour shift forward in October and a two-hour shift back Ooh. in March, oh Willett's idea was a little bit crazier. In 1905, he suggested moving the clocks ahead 20 minutes on each Sunday in April and then what? 20 minutes back on each Sunday in September for a total of eight time changes per year. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, clearly yeah. that didn't pan out for <laughs> obvious reasons. <laughs> That's right. So in reality, even though Canada can take the credit for the first time change, 
it was actually two years into the First World War that Germany introduced daylight saving time in an attempt to minimize using artificial lighting to save fuel for the war effort. And as oh. an ally, Austria also followed. And then within a few weeks, the UK, France, and other countries followed suit. This got reverted back to standard time after the war, but then was reintroduced again during World War II, and here we are today. So all this about, like, farmers and time changes and earlier days for them had nothing to do with the original intentions, is what I'm hearing. Interesting. Right. Okay, so do all or most countries follow the daylight saving times? Actually, no. It's the other way around. Interestingly, more than 60% of the countries in the world use standard time all year round. The countries that don't switch times are usually near the equator, which makes sense since they get even amounts of sun all year round. Africa is one continent that never had daylight saving time. And the remaining countries that use daylight saving time are not surprisingly in North America, Europe, South America, New Zealand, and Australia. But even what I just said isn't fully true because there are some countries that have cities or, in the case of Canada, provinces that don't change their clocks. Mm -hmm. For example, most of Saskatchewan actually does not change its time. Yukon Territory stopped changing its clocks in November 2020 and Creston in northern northwestern BC. Southeastern, southeastern Labrador, Nunavut, Southampton Island, and two communities in northern Ontario also stay on standard time all year round. Uh, there's nothing to but mix you up. And and I think sometimes, I think we just want to make people feel, hey, there's more light now, look, see? And it's it's out later. Um, Francis, it's just one of those things we keep hearing that cry of, let's get rid of it. Um, what are some of the unintended consequences of springing ahead, uh, you know, once a year? Well, the main one would be sleep deprivation, but it's not just mm. that this isn't an individual problem. It's what results from sleep deprivation as it affects not just yes. the person who is sleep deprived, but potentially others around them as a result of their actions and behaviors. Then if you multiply it with everyone losing an hour's sleep, the effects can be magnified. In, work, in fact, workplace injuries go up after daylight saving time in the spring. Oh. Dr. Stanley Corrin is a psychologist out of the University of British Columbia who wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine in 1996 outlining some of the concerns of insufficient sleep and disrupted circadian rhythms. He names major disasters such as the nuclear accident at Chernobyl, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, and the destruction of the space shuttle Challenger, all as having the common denominator of being linked to insufficient sleep, disrupted circadian rhythms, or both on the part of involved supervisors and staff. On a smaller scale, studies have shown that a loss of one hour of sleep during the time change in the spring has resulted in an 8% increase of traffic accidents, whereas in the fall, the same change of the clock back one hour shows the decrease of accidents of approximately the same magnitude. And each time we lose an hour, it can take up to five days for the effects of sleep deprivation to wear off. Yeah, that I believe. I also feel like there are people or professions who are more affected than others by this when we switch to standard time. Um, your thoughts on that? 
Uh, that's true, Ramya. One group of people that do love daylight saving time in the spring are those who work overnight shifts. Staff in hospitals or those working late in bars and pubs get paid to work one less hour. <laughs> the same goes for workplaces that are staffed 24 hours a day. You can think of 7-Elevens and 24-hour shoppers drug marts to police, fire, and ambulance. But of course, this also gets reversed in the fall when they have to work right. that extra hour. Yep. Yeah, and that's what their argument would be. Uh, well, don't, don't don't think so great that we're so lucky because. Um, here's an odd question for you. Is there any place on Earth that doesn't use time? I mean, maybe the North Pole. <laughs> but interestingly <laughs> enough, in a 2019, a small island in northern Norway called Asamaray, uh, Samurai, which means Summer Island, wanted to be the world's first time-free zone. This oh. island has a very small population of 300, where fishing and tourism are their main industries. And being north of the Arctic Circle means that the sun doesn't set there for 69 days of the year, from May 18 through July 26. One of the islanders spoke about how you could find children playing soccer or people painting their houses or mowing their lawns at 2 a.m. during the summer hours. So to formalize that, they were already what they were already doing. Uh, the islanders gathered at a town hall meeting to sign a petition for a time-free zone. Can you just imagine the freedom of just having summer, endless summer days? Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty incredible wow. about you. Yeah, it wow. sounds good in the summer. Yeah, well, apparently. The Norway state-funded tourism agency also thought it was a great idea, and they promoted this idea as a publicity stunt, which I would say was pretty successful in getting people to talk about it. Even CNN promoted this island because of its unique offering, which CNN corrected in a later article and admitted in not so many words that they were fooled. <laughs> wow. I, well, and you think about the complaints, you know, if you call the police, look, this this guy is mowing his lawn at 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah. Don't worry about that. We threw that statute out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we know that there's been discussions, Francis, on actually getting rid of this biannual changing of the clocks. Uh, you know, I think at one point Ontario was like, well, if Quebec does it and New York does it, then maybe we'll do it, things like that. So we've heard about this in the news. Yes. Um, the idea has been floating around for a few years now, as you've mentioned. Uh, BC actually passed a bill in 2019 called the Interpretation Amendment Act after surveying residents in which 93% of the province agreed to this move. However, of course, because we live in such an interconnected world, this proposal is contingent on Yukon and Washington, yeah. Oregon and California doing the same, which makes sense because if you're doing business and the hours don't line up, you could potentially lose customers during the beginning or end of the day. And then residents traveling across border in the same longitude don't need the confusion of changing times to adjust to what the U.S. is doing. What's really interesting is that in the survey, three quarters said health concerns were the reason behind their support for getting rid of the clock change. So I think that people are quite aware of the impact that changing the clock has on us. Unanimously supported an end to the time change for 20, uh, November 2023. Tara Holmes, the co-founder of Stop the Time Change BC, is hoping that switching back an hour of the clocks this past November is one of the last times BC will do it and that after this springtime, change next week that bc won't need to change clocks again but this remains to be seen with the new premier whether he follows through with doing so
And then Ontario nice. also introduced a bill back in 2020 to make the change with a caveat that Quebec and New York State also do, does the same. So there seems to be a bit more interest and willingness by a couple of provinces, at least, to consider making this permanent. Um, and then time will um, tell well there, whether this happens or not. <laughs> Francis, briefly, real brief, do you have any suggestions, please, on how to adjust to the time change? Yeah, um, it's similar to jet lag where you're changing time zones. So what you want to do is kind of prepare earlier, start um, by going to bed 15 minutes to half an hour earlier than your usual time. And then this just allows your body to get used to making the shift and then makes the transition less jarring. And then you also want to keep a schedule so that it's easy to slip into staying up a little bit later when we have that extra hour in the fall. But just keep a consistent schedule so that our body doesn't get confused. And that means don't skip meals unless you're fasting and don't skip exercise. Just keep things consistent so that your body doesn't get surprised. If you're tired awesome. and considering napping, just make sure that they're shorter than 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. Francis, appreciate it. Thank you much. Yeah, you betcha. <laughs> well, that's a speed catnap. Take care, Francis. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks on the program. Francis Wong joins us bi-weekly to talk wellness opposite our nutrition segment with Julia Karanchis. I just love how everybody's waiting on everybody else to make the time change first. No, we'll do it if you do it. No, we'll do it if you'll do it. So Good neighbor funny. policy. All right. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we're talking about World Glaucoma Week, which kicks off on Sunday with Dr. Larissa Meniz of Fighting Blindness Canada. We'll be right back. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Kelly and Rumia on AMI. Thanks for listening to us. And hey, here's something to look forward to. If you're a student who identifies as having a disability, uh, you can apply for the 2023 AMI scholarship program and selected entrants will receive a $5,000 bursary along with a queen size Temper Cloud Mattress. Look at that. The mattress is back. So for more information, you can visit ami.ca slash scholarship and get your entrance in. Again, that's ami.ca slash scholarship. I'm Ramia Amuthan here with Kelly McDonald, and we're going to talk a little bit of eye health now. As this Sunday marks the start of Glaucoma Week, and um, let's just make sure I... Yes. World Glaucoma Week, and we want to learn more about this condition along with other eye conditions, maybe if we get some time for it, with Dr. Larissa Moniz, Director of Research and Mission Program at Fighting Blindness Canada. Dr. Moniz, thank you so much for coming back. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this chat. I know you talked a little Luxterna this morning with Dave Brown and company, but let's talk about this common eye disease, glaucoma, and how it can be mitigated. Can we start there? Absolutely. So, yeah, so you're right by saying that glaucoma is common. It's the leading cause of irreversible vision loss in Canada. So there are currently over 700,000 Canadians who have glaucoma, and about 129,000 Canadians have vision loss that's caused by glaucoma. Hmm. Wow. wow, that's so, a, what, what a big number. Wow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, just to give some, some of the your listeners some some context. So glaucoma, it's an eye disease that damages the optic nerve and it's often associated with high pressure. 
And so when the pressure in the eye get, gets higher, it puts pressure on the optic nerve and that leads to vision loss. And the optic nerve is the, the cells that connect the retina to the brain, which creates, um, creates vision. Right. Hmm. So why is that diagnosis missed so often? What, what, what are those signs we look for? So I don't know if I would necessarily say the diagnosis is missed. It's more that um, there are often no symptoms to begin with at the early stages right. of glaucoma. So for the most common type of glaucoma, which is called open angle glaucoma, there can be no symptoms at all at the early stages. And so you might only notice that you have it once you've already lost some vision. And once vision is lost in glaucoma, it is unfortunately irreversible. So there is no way to restore that lost vision. So it's really, really important to go for your regular um, checkups, especially if you are at high risk. And there's a number of reasons why you might be at higher risk. So as you get older, your risk goes up. If you have a family history, if you have certain types of uh, medical conditions, for instance, having high blood pressure or certain other eye diseases can increase your risk of glaucoma. So it's really important to make sure that you're going for those regular eye checkups so that if your doctor notices that your um, eye pressure is high or that they're starting to see some optic nerve damage, you can get treatment as soon as possible. Um Dr. Meniz, you mentioned that there are, you know, little to no symptoms, right? Especially at the early stages of glaucoma. Now, I associate pressure with pain. So do people just, uh, is it possible that people don't get any pain or any of that at all to give indication that they may be uh, due for an eye check? Mm -hmm. So I would say it sort of depends on how advanced the eye disease is, but also um, on the type of eye disease. So for open angle, at, which is the most common, often no pain, often no symptoms until you're already seeing vision loss. Mm. There is another type, which is relatively common, called um, acute closure glaucoma. And for that, you can actually have pain. So um, there can be pain and there can be other visual, visual symptoms, for instance, loss of peripheral vision. You might start to see some halos or have some blurred vision. Um, but we think it's um, the key message is about those regular appointments yes. so you can actually catch it before the damage has started. And that's the key, isn't it? Because, as you say, even losing vision, is it hard for a person to really notice unless you're doing something all the time and you say, geez, that seems kind of strange, which obviously you've already lost it, but a person could lose a reasonable amount before they even have, hey, I better go see someone. I think that's a really good point. Um, it, part part of it is because we are so adaptable as mm -hmm. humans. So you often will uh, adapt to compensate. having lost vision already and compensate. So you might not even notice uh, until it has gone so far. So let's say you have been diagnosed with glaucoma. What can we do at that point? You're talking about the checkups, really, really important. Mm -hmm. Anything else or even yeah, so in those lines? Yeah, there are treatments for glaucoma. So that is um, another, you know, great news story and research over the past decades has been delivering better and better treatments. So while there is no cure, there are treatments to help lower the pressure. And a lot of people will be on eye drops. So that is the most common and usually the first treatment that people will receive is eye drops that help lower the pressure. If the drops aren't working, um, your doctor may suggest surgery and there's a, a number of different types of surgery. And they also are trying to, to reduce that pressure. Fantastic. Okay, but there's some stuff going on, research that you're working on and how it might actually impact the glaucoma management. Can you get into that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So both um, 
researchers who are funded by Fighting Blindness Canada, but also researchers around the world, they're setting a whole, a whole sort of suite of different ways that may improve glaucoma outcomes. So one of them is creating better treatments, um, of maybe better drops that last longer, that have less side effects, that are more effective. Mm -hmm. There's um, a whole area of research into creating surgeries that are less invasive and have less side effects. And these are called minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries. And you're starting to hear more and more about them in Canada. And then you've got um, some, some research that's happening about how do you detect glaucoma earlier? So there's a lot of research around that. For instance, I just um, we just published a, a short article talking about this really interesting contact lens that some researchers in the States have developed, which can monitor eye pressure and then release um, release like the eye treatment drops, the pressure-lowering drops. So you get this personalized treatment as soon as your eye pressure wow. starts to go up. So that's um, some, some really exciting stuff. And then I would say, finally, uh, you have research that's trying to restore vision for people who've already lost vision as well. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious about... When you say side effect, reducing some of those, um, when somebody's under treatment, can you just mention what are some of the side effects? I, I, I often think, well, okay, you know, what, taking drops, is there really that many side effects? But definitely there are things that people should be aware of. Yep. So it depends on the type of treatment you're doing and also if you have other health conditions. But some of the sort of common side effects is some of the drops can be quite irritating to your eye. So they may they may sting, they may hurt a lot. Um, because the drops are pressure lowering, you have to be careful if you do have blood pressure issues because you might get sort of systemic um, pressure changes as well. So those are a couple of the sort of more common side effects. But I would say overall, the, compared to the benefits of the treatment, the side effects yes. can be minor. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, you mentioned at the beginning there is no cure for glaucoma, uh, but then during the research portion, you did mention that um, there is research being held into uh, restoring some of the, the lost vision that people may have experienced with glaucoma. So how close in your expertise do you feel we are to a cure? So I would say we're probably pretty far from a, an absolute cure. Um, research into using stem cell ther therapies to restore sight. There are some in clinical trials, but not yet for glaucoma or for optic nerve damage. Okay. That is still very much at the research phase. It's, there's some exciting research happening, but it's, it is still a little bit earlier on. Some other ways that um, researchers are looking to restore sight is using things like retinal prostheses or prostheses that might be um, implanted in the brain, which won't necessarily restore complete vision, but give people back maybe some light sensitivity um, or ability to recognize objects. So it's a, a type of vision at this point. Right. But again, sorry, this wow. is also still at the clinical trial stage. This is not yet available for, for use. I know being a person who's been uh, vision impaired and now pretty well blind all my life, the thing that always jumps into my head, people will say, my, my general doctor will say, hey, uh, you know, when's the last time, you know, you've had an eye checkup, an eye appointment? Well, oh, well, yeah, it's not higher on my priority list in my mind, and I've been trying, especially when we have you guys on the program to start thinking of more of that. But I think we need to cover what should people who are partially sighted or blind need to know about their eye health uh, when it comes to, you know, that vision loss that you already have. What kinds of screenings still need to be done? Yes, I think it's really important, especially if you have um, some sight left. You want to um, 
maintain the site you have because even a little bit of site is extremely precious and can be really functional. So making sure you go for um, sort of a comprehensive eye exam at your optometrist or if you have a regular ophthalmologist, you can see your ophthalmologist and they will do, they will look at your, your front of your eye, they'll look at the back of your eye, they'll look at your optic nerve, um, they'll test different parts of your vision, your peripheral vision, your central vision, just to make to see if there's any changes. So that's often what you're looking for is are there changes from last time and that's why the regular eye appointments are so important so your doctor can can track it. Actually, after one of our last, um, the last times I talked at AMI, I realized I kept saying, oh, you have to go for an eye appointment. You have to go for your regular eye appointment. And I hadn't gone in a few years. I just went, I think, two weeks ago to, to get mine. So now I've got a, a clear conscience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll let you know when mine is clear when I go, because yeah. and I'll need that reminder when you come on the show. And by the way, Kelly, before I go, how's your eye doctor? Yeah, nice having you on again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is one of the questions I ask you and and other ophthalmologists like when you come on, and it's how how much do you think we're already aware of glaucoma? You know, if you were to look at the percentage of Canadians or in North Americans and say, um, you know, people seem to know about it or seem to understand the the concepts around you know how often we should be getting checked. Uh, do you think that is the case for glaucoma or do we have a long way to go in, in terms of just keeping up with our eye appointments and understanding that this is what glaucoma is? These are the chances of people uh, being diagnosed. Yeah, I think a lot of people have probably heard of glaucoma. They might not know exactly what it is, but they might know somebody who has it or was diagnosed. So in a way, I think there's a awareness of it being an eye condition. But I think what a lot of people sometimes forget about or don't know is that there really are great treatments available for a lot of these eye diseases, whether it's glaucoma, whether it's age-related macular degeneration, whether it is um, cataracts. Um, so the diagnosis part is really about just the same way you take care of other parts of your health, just being really proactive so that you can um, prevent any vision loss occurring. I think a lot of people don't necessarily know that if they wait too long, they may lose vision that otherwise they didn't have to. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, we've got about a minute. Anything going on this month um, to bring awareness or that people should be checking out if they want more information? So people can always come to our website. So that's fightingblindness.ca where we have a lot of educational content. So we have health resources about glaucoma, um, about going to see your doctor and questions you might want to ask. We also have past webinars from, from glaucoma experts, which will give you a little bit of a sort of a one-on-one about glaucoma and treatments. And then actually in April, we are holding a special webinar specifically about new and innovative treatments in glaucoma. And you can find all that information on our website. Okay. Amazing. I know that uh, FPC is keeping very, very busy. There's lots going on all the time and research everywhere in different stages. So appreciate um, your time and, and the team that's always keeping us posted. Well, thanks for having me. I always love talking to you. Thank you. Dr. Larissa Manise is the Director of Research and Mission Programs at Fighting Blindness Canada. If you go to fightingblindness.ca, you can learn more about the topic, which is glaucoma, the common eye disease, and how it can be mitigated. Um, I think that you asked a very valuable question there, Kelly, which is, you know, people who already are diagnosed with some eye condition or another or already know that they have a progressive eye condition, you know, do we feel the motivation to go see uh, our eye doctors? And I think it's very important because of the research yeah. that's being done. 
I've struggled with that for years, been advised to do it, have all sorts of reasons, even from people that aren't even associated directly with the eye field. Also, you can get on their mailing list too, folks. Yes. They're always keeping you up to date. Mm -hmm. That's right. As we wrap up here, we have a whole another hour of Kelly and Ramya in hour two. We have W. Ross McDonald School students joining us. The, uh, Colin specifically is going to tell us about his projects that he's been working on. Also, we have Lucia Belafonte and Gavin O'Sullivan joining us to talk parenting. The impact of kind and supportive parenting. Also, after the break, talking about chess with uh, Mathieu Rochette, our commun community reporter in Montreal. We'll be right back. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.